Welcome to Cities Unmasked, the U of T School of Cities sponsored podcast about the ways that COVID-19 has highlighted and deepened the contours of urban inequality while amplifying the need for an actualizing tangible action. For each episode in this limited series, we will explore a different lens of cities of inequality in conversation with Lubna Ali, Victoria McCutcheon, Ali Sajid, and Brittany Livingston. This pandemic is just showing us that we've always had the resources and the means to help the communities that are needing the help, you know? It's just who do we prioritize and who do we care about? Recognizing what your community needs and taking it upon yourself in a legal way to, um, you know, transform the space and to make it your own and to take your claim on it. People who have like resource constraints be inadvertently excluded out of green spaces because they recognize that if, if they get sick, they don't have that kind of like access to healthcare. Why is that money going to one big park in an affluent area instead of, you know, in the entire park system? So who are these parks for and and what kind of residents are being prioritized? Today, I, Brittany, will be leading a discussion on informal settlements as both sites of state neglect and community innovation. Let's get into it. For the billion-plus people currently living in the over 200,000 informal settlements around the world, these self-built habitats of last resort provide shelter despite the massive housing shortage in the rapidly urbanizing Global South. Whatever their local names, favelas in Brazil, barrios in Colombia, busties in India, or slums in Nairobi, these informal settlements are characterized by self-built housing, usually constructed illegally, as well as a lack of municipal basic infrastructure and services, including sanitation, electricity, water, and waste. A central tenet in the UN's 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development, as adopted by 193 member states in 2015, is to refocus urbanization around the needs of the disadvantaged. However, the concentrated spread of COVID-19 within informal settlements exposes how little has been done to serve the most vulnerable. Informal settlements often look startlingly distinctive from planned areas of cities, so much that some, like Mumbai's Davari, have become tourist destinations. Davari gained notoriety as a backdrop for Slumdog Millionaire, cast as both a place of remarkable vibrancy and unmitigated squalor. Davari's self-built shanties fuse into makeshift skyscrapers with their myriad of wooden panels corrugated metal sheets, brick walls, and improvised windows and waste pipes, creating architectural anarchy. Some urban critics fiercely condemn the systemic inequalities that produce these state-neglected districts, while others argue for the acceptance of informal settlements as an inherent urban element that will continue to grow to become an ever-larger part of future cities. In 2019, the UN estimated that approximately 25% of the world's urban population, over 1 billion people, live in informal settlements. It is challenging our perception that future cities of glass and steel will instead comprise a myriad of salvaged materials. Postcards from the Future, a digital photo series depicting how future London sites, including Trafalgar Square, Buckingham Palace, and the Gherkin, might be transformed by future climate refugees into what the artists term shantytowns. Although troubling in their characterization of exotic slums of the Global South, these images starkly um, juxtapose the highly formal and exclusive city of London with the often unacknowledged other. 
Slums have long been seen as parasites of the city. Policymakers strive to formalize their informalities, thereby sterilizing communities whose physical structures, social norms, and visual aesthetics do not conform with modernist and formal conceptions of what the city should be. Informal settlements manifest extraordinary creative resourcefulness in establishing their own self-regulating service provision, entrepreneurship, and governance. Theorizing the slum as an agent of urban transformation reveals another layer of what the modern city can be, socially, culturally, economically, and materially. For current and future city builders, the so-called rehabilitation of the slum might mean learning how to integrate them into the city instead. Unless policy settings seek to understand the rules and governance behind informal settlements, the preoccupation with design, materiality, and aesthetics will continue to disengage from the needs of the growing cohort of urban slum dwellers. Dharavi is one of the world's most densely populated slums. One organization gives outsiders a glimpse of life inside this bustling Mumbai neighborhood through walking tours aimed at dispelling negative stereotypes of slum life. Reality Tours and Travel CEO Stephanie Hayes says visitors are surprised at what they see. That's what people don't understand. There's hospitals, there's schools, there's businesses, there's industry, there's, there's everything in here. Located in the heart of Mumbai, Dharavi is literally a city within a city, an industrial epicenter that generates more than $650 million a year. India's Dharavi, Asia's most crowded slum, has gone from coronavirus hotspot to potential success story. Authorities have knocked on as many as 47,500 doors since April to measure temperatures and oxygen levels, screened almost 7 lakh people in the slum cluster and set up fever clinics. The numbers are in stark contrast to the rest of India, whose daily tally of new infected cases has quadrupled since early May. There is a tent city growing along Notre Dame Street East in Hochelaga. The people who are camped there say they were asked to leave other areas of Montreal and they don't want to go to any of the shelters. The borough mayor says he doesn't plan to disperse the camp before winter sets in. The Red Cross hands out food each day, social workers connect campers to local services, and nearby shelters provide showers. Residents of the tent city do what they can to maintain good relations with their neighbors. Montreal police say there have been no complaints about safety from nearby residents. A country that was uh, truly suffering the legacy of apartheid infrastructure that was scant, unemployment that was over 85%, an HIV crisis that had yet to be identified. And I just witnessed these young uh, children living in shacks who had been abused. So what is the meaning and the use of the word slum? How does it change depending on your perspective and worldview? Um, thanks, thanks for the for for the further into Brittany, um, so I was I was like really interested by the names and stuff, and so you 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 mentioned that um, in Nairobi they're called slums, whereas for for others it's like they're like favelas or like barras or busties. So is our is our use of slum is it is it like derived from Nairobi? Um, so Nairobi, um, it is a a English um, speaking area, um, so we use slum as well. So it's really just the English, English word of that versus oh, that um, yeah, the local languages. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that. But I, it thought, does, I thought it, maybe the it, 
it does also show kind of like that the Western discourse is kind of our whole idea of it. Like we're taking it from the Western perspective, largely in a lot of um, theories um, about the global South. It's not necessarily by people living there, but it can be from, from people from the outside. I think that's a good point that you raised because um, the whole idea of the global North versus the global South and who has this like glorified idea of development and who is developed. A lot of scholars um, that write on issues, even issues about international development, you know, they're writing from a lens of like a white scholar. And so many times that sidelines the perspectives of the people who live in slums, which are majority are people of color or black people, indigenous people, you know? Um, and so one scholar, Ananya Roy, um, she works on slums. She's sort of a well-known scholar in the city planning space. And her, um, she reclaims the identity of slums in a lot of her, her research. Um, and she specifically focuses on the slums of India. And she talks about how it's actually a thriving, bustling city, like you mentioned in the introduction. Um, and there is a lot that's happening there that people are overlooking poor ideas around electricity or sanitation or, you know, uh, what it, what work looks like to them or what a family life or a home life may look like to them. Um, and it just creates this us versus them, like, idea, you know? Yeah, I completely agree. The word slum can be very othering. It very much looks as that as um, kind of the inferior way of living. They don't have resources, therefore, and their housing isn't like ours, therefore, it's not an area that you would want to live in. I think the word slum is very pitying, and it kind of evokes that sort of like savior complex to a certain degree. Yeah, and I yep, think it sure. also just looks at the the physical landscape and the amenities or lack of amenities um, in neighborhoods, but it's really just kind of state neglect. There's a lot of social cohesion in different slum neighborhoods and social capital, arguably more social capital that you would see in more formalized neighborhoods because people are relying on each other to develop electricity systems and sanitation and, and, you know, having businesses out of their homes um, because they can, because they're not being, you know, managed by the municipality. So they don't necessarily have to go through all these different zoning protocols. So there's certainly benefits of these neighborhoods that if you kind of just say mm -hmm. like slum, it, it just looks at the outside and not at the inherent value of living in such close networked areas yeah i think that yeah i think that's definitely a good point to make um you know i think the media plays a huge part in that too mm -hmm. and just like movies and tv shows and you know, every time like you see like characters going to an area like that it's always like this big shock factor of like oh my gosh people this is how you live and we kind of forget that like you yes there can be like poor conditions mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that there's not still life and culture there yeah, I think I definitely, I've definitely been guilty in the past to kind of like neglected the complexity of life um, in slum, you know, because because of all of this negative association with 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 the term. Yeah, it's interesting. So I, when I was younger, I did a midwee trip um, when I was, you know, preteen, and we visited a, a slum neighborhood as part of you know a so-called poverty tour. I've learned it is is described as so kind of looking in at people and really it's not meant to to 
support the people by any means. They have no say in, in this whole interaction. It's very one-sided and it's almost like a human kind of zoo experience mm-hmm. where you're like, oh, wow, look, Better. people actually live like this. How horrible. It's really mm-hmm. just to make you feel grateful for what you have back home. And then you go home and you're like, whoa, I have this big, beautiful house. And then you never think about those people again. It's really you know, self-fulfilling and it, it really doesn't do anything for those people. And it's, it's, it's a really awful, awful exchange in kind of the volunteerism industry. It's really just for people of, from a lot of Western countries to go there be like, oh, look, yeah. I'm holding this child. <laughs> oh, look, I'm holding this child for Facebook. And like, what are you doing in those communities? Are you helping them? Are you, you know, it's never a picture of people smiling, you know, in these different neighborhoods. It's some sad and like downcast and yeah. it really perpetuates that that stereotype that you see in a lot of infomercials, you know, um, in different um commercials where it's like help these children help look at what they have look at what you have look around your house it's it's very much that same narrative it's interesting because i'm like i like i remember being younger and like really wanting to do one of those trips and i was just like like this just looks so good you're like you're bringing so much good to these other countries and stuff and then it's like you have to really look at it like these people that are going in and they're like hey we're gonna build a school for these people and they go in and they build this school and then they leave and they're not even like concerned about, you know, whether the, the community is actually ready to to uphold that kind of place. If they have the teachers that are there, if they have the resources that keep the school running, that it's not just going to uh, deteriorate with time. You know, I think that we need to like when they're they're doing these kinds of trips and stuff like you have to consider and consult with the community to see what they actually need and what they can actually Um, you know, maintain at the time and how we can help them to actually do that. I think that's an interesting point which can be like contextualized to, to, you know, like broadly development work um, that's, that that's happening across the world, you know, about the need to contextualize it to the, to the people. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, I think my experience growing up was a bit different from you folks in that I grew up in Lahore. And so um, I, so slums were, there were more than a few slums in, in, in the city that I grew up in. And it was just sort of like a expect, accepted part of life. So like we, we, we sort of like just accepted that they were there. And I think there was ne- less of the um, negative associations. You know, it mm-hmm. was just like an alternative way of life. Um, I actually did volunteer uh, for, for a program where uh, which which catered to students from slums and which which offered free education to them, and I think it was like it was it was an experience that was like completely normal. You know, it's like I didn't we didn't ask you know like particular particular questions about you know like life in slums. It was just it was just something that we just accepted as normal and like interacting like hearing about your experiences uh, regarding slums like like makes me kind of like wonder about you know like how how normalized that that aspect of life was. Wow, I really appreciate you sharing that, Ali, and um, your experiences and your perspective, because you said that it wasn't something that was, you know, necessarily looked down upon, that it was, you know, sort of like an alternative way of life, right? Yeah, no, it's just, yeah, so I think, yeah, like, yeah. It, that just, like, speaks a lot to, like, the perspectives and how we were trained to think think, think about things. Um, even for me, like, I was just reflecting as well. Like, I grew up in South America in Guyana, and I lived there for the first seven years of my life. It, depending on where you are, there is a lot of 
quote unquote informal settlements. So um, I personally never really lived in one or grew up in an area where that was the case. But my parents have told stories that they've heard from their grandparents about, you know, when they first came to Guyana as indentured laborers. And a lot of times they built mud huts, which were called banabs. In Jamaica, I also learned that this is also similar. There's uh, shanty towns, which are also a group of informal settlements that are built. And it's also seen as like an alternative way of living. Um, Houses made out of uh, tin. You know, that's just an another way of life. It's I think now that we're moving forward in a more quote unquote like modern society or where there's more technology and whatnot, you know, there might be a socioeconomic gap where those things are talked about in a comparative light. And so you will hear things about like, oh, well, they, you know, they don't have running water, they don't have electricity, like, that is still a reality for many people who live in Guyana, depending on what part of the country they're from. But there still is like a stigma there about who has access to what, and what type of people live a certain type of life. But for the people who live in the interiors or who live, you know, like not in the city, that's normal. There's no discussion about that there. So it's relative, you know. So I just think it's really interesting to reflect about positionality in that sense. I'd be interested to know, Ali or Lubna, is is kind of the idea in Guyana and Lahore that people are trying to get out of slums? Like, is it a place you never want to be? Because that's very much how it's portrayed in the West. Or is it just, this is what I have. This is where I'm living. It's just a fact of life. Ali, I'll let you answer first. (laughs) Just because like I haven't had a lot of interaction with folks from slums, I can't I can't really speak to that. But I guess I guess what's very striking to me is just the fact that there was this inequality right in front of us and and that there wasn't any discussion about it. You know, like it never it, it, it wasn't like the point of any discussion like growing mm-hmm. up or it, it wasn't there were there wasn't like any conversation about it. It was just, you know, like something that was that was accepted. It was just something like you said, you know, like a fact of life. And um, I think I think it's very telling about about, you know, like at least, mm-hmm. you know, like some attitudes towards towards, you know, like inequality about about it just being like accepted as natural or like, OK. Yeah, I think that's a good way to phrase it. Um, and it just made me reflect even more on like my own experiences growing up there, because I think when you're a kid, you don't really think about those things. You kind of just go through the motions of life and your parents like shelter you from a lot of things. People in Guyana definitely have this idea of like wanting to get out of Guyana. Like, you know, they don't want to, if they have the opportunity to come to Canada or to the US or to the UK, those are the three main places where expats go. That's like the dream. Everybody wants that. They want that better idea for their kids, I guess, mostly for schooling and just opportunity to live in a country that's a little bit more politically sound. Um, I don't know if necessarily that's, I mean, everything is intertwined. So not having access to certain things or having not like not having the best quality of life. The government is not stable. There's always um, issues with elections back and forth um, between, you know, who's going to be the ruling party and what are the politics around that. And race politics are centered to a lot of that. They go at it back and forth in terms of politics and riots and, you know, burning tires. Like my parents have told me stories of even when I was growing up there that they couldn't get through to get into town, for example, because there were people burning tires and blocking roads. And there were riots happening at the time because the government wasn't listening to the people and what they wanted. And, you know. A lot of those things were going on that really added to the tensions as to why people wanted this better life and wanted to move away. But on the flip, people who have money, I don't think have an interest in leaving necessarily. They are, it's easier for them to leave, but 
there's almost this reverse idea that once you come here and you're in Canada and you're in the UK and you're in the US and you're comfortable, that you almost want to go back later on in life um, to retire or that more like slower paced life. But like Ali said, it's a fact of it's almost like a fact of life. Like you grow up and people have different means and you see it and you help in whatever ways you can if it's possible. But it's almost unspoken of. Um, I mean, just just speaking about your experiences, for for me, I think I think it was really interesting that Brittany talked about, you know, like Mumbai's Ravi and the Slumdog Millionaire, because like Mumbai really comes up, you know, like as a city where where there's like a lot of inequality and there's you know like great wealth but there's also a lot of poverty one striking example of that is Mukesh Ambani's home Antilia which is just next to the Gherkin slum so this guy is the richest man in Asia and this house is the most expensive private residence in the world and it's and it is right next to a really really large slum when you look at pictures of you know like this 27 story house next to you know like this sprawling slum it kind of like really drives home the point about inequality being just like accepted as normal you know like being people just like being really comfortable with inequality it's interesting to me why he would have chosen that location if you have that much money he could have picked anywhere you know, in Mumbai, let alone, you know, the world. So to choose that place, have it that high, is it, I don't know, it feels intentional to me. Like, why would you do it right there to to, to really display your Wrong. wealth in a way, yeah. you know, you're not... Yeah, it's kind of like, just like fun, you know? Yeah, like you're not, it's not a big enough house on its own. You have to juxtapose it beside this slum to really show how wealthy you are. Mm-hmm. Like, that's so... Oh, I can't get over that. It's it's really awful. Are slums in India scattered throughout the city or is it are they in specific areas? Like did he kind of not have a choice? Was it inevitable that like he almost gentrified the neighborhood or was it like uh Brittany said intentional? Because it seems uh, I'm not I'm not I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure about that, but like I was I was like reading reading an article about how maybe the land that he built his house on was illegally obtained. Oh, wow. Like it was an orphanage and any kind of just like use his, his money and like his wealth to kind of like obtain the land. He just like used his po- political clout to, to kind of like take, take just like take over the orphanage to like build his house. Wow. Because there wasn't any other, you know, available land for him to pick. Wow. It's interesting. You see a lot of that too, where there's like these pictures of like these giant condo buildings and then there's like a fence and then these like deteriorated areas. And they, they, a lot of the cities you see these like poorer areas, they try and hide them or put like shops in front of them and stuff and just all of this luxury so they can kind of push it to the back and maintain this image. I think, I think, I think like for, so for example, like we've talked about, you know, like cities of informalities, like um, slum being in the Southwest I think I think it'd be like really interesting to like now maybe turn the focus to so for the people who have grown up in the global north like what is how does how does informality present itself in the global north like what what has your experience been? Yeah, I think that's a really good point because slums are often seen as mm. other it's other places it's not here like we're great here but you look at how Aboriginal peoples are treated in Canada like 
some reserves are very much akin to what you would describe as slums. They don't necessarily have, you know, ready access to potable water Mm. and different things, but that's kind of, oh no, like that's not our thing. It's interesting how people can so easily help people across, you know, the world but can't help people in in their own backyard. Oh, and, that's a really good question. Um, nice. Like different <laughs> tent cities for the homeless that have increasingly popped up because of COVID-19. And that's not necessarily point. seen mm-hmm. as, you know, an informal settlement. That's seen as a temporary shelter, even with mm-hmm. different um, natural disasters. Community center set up with all these different cots and, you know, different mm-hmm. areas to get food. People wouldn't say that's an informal settlement, but it technically is. It's just mm-hmm. more temporal, right? And it's also largely, you know, driven. Like that one's kind of interesting because it is often cities themselves that can set up those spaces, but they're so they're formalized kind of in that sort of sense, yep. but they're extremely informal. They're not necessarily zoned for people to be living. So that is informal. It's an interesting kind of juxtaposition, but those aren't necessarily seen as informal cities because they're not, you know, slums where people are living in squalor a world away. It's different here. You know, mm-hmm. this is just a temporary thing. I think that's an extension of like the whole private public debate. Um, and so like the issue of like, private access versus public access of what is public space and you know um occupy wall street comes up as a very common example of that um in new york in zuccotti park um there are a lot of private developers that surround the park that want to control the aesthetic of the area and who gets access to it and who uses it and you know complaints come from the local neighborhood as well people with higher income don't want to see homeless people in parks they don't want to They have concerns about sanitation issues, about aesthetics. And so by default, this created an issue that pushed out homeless people. They set up tent uh, or camp in in the park. And um, this has been an ongoing issue, uh, not just in New York, but in many cities, where there is this question about the privatization of public spaces, the implicit and indirect privatization of public spaces and how this can be controlled or this can be... When when Brittany was talking about, you know, like 10 cities about how they're not recognized as slums, even though they technically are, I thought that it, it circles back to, you know, like our original point about, you know, like the meaning and use of the word slum and about how there's like mm-hmm. a specific image that's associated with the word. That image is necessarily very negative, which mm-hmm. kind of like neglects the complexity of life and slums. And even even though, even though, there are other cities of environmentalists in the global north. They're not recognized as such. It's seen solely as, you know, like a developing country problem. Yeah, um, I saw this tweet on Twitter the other day um, about um, Canada. And like Brittany was talking about the juxtaposition of it all and how Canada is also um, guilty of that because we have we're known to have one of the best healthcare systems of the entire world. But we have a lot of medical racism that we're fighting as well with indigenous peoples. They face the brunt of a lot of neglect when it comes to medical care. And a lot of those, the tweet was stating was a lot of those policies are, our policies are worse than it is even in the States. And, you know, people sort of put the States as like this pillar of like, we could never be like them. But just because we as settlers are, you know, we have a lot of uh, solutions or options available to us when we are sick or in our healthcare system. It does not mean that those same protections are there for Indigenous folks. 
one of the things that struck me the most was that I think it was like 1940s or 1950s. That was only when they have they had access to healthcare, like government funding, I believe, like a specific card that Indigenous folks have to use or present. And so because of the way that their funding is allocated through federal budgets, it has a slower process when it comes to reimbursements down to the local communities. There's a time gap and a funding gap. Based on the discussion so far, where do you guys think that municipalities could best employ informal processes to strengthen and reinvigorate the current practices? How do you think that, you know, the gap could be filled? I think for this global south, you know, like, yeah, it is. Um, I think I think for the global south, kind of like how, how, how someone was talking about how someone is talking about, you know, like how services are provided over here. So you have so you have, you know, like the portable toilets and stuff. You have like, um, you know, like access to sanitation, water um, that, that are being provided. I think for the global south, you know, like even even for the for the slums, I, I know that they really struggle with these things. And so I think just like providing these services could be a good, a good, you know, like at least like a temporary solution to kind of like, like how you're talking about it being like, kind of like a mix between informal and formal versus it being just like 100% informal or 100% formal. In terms of like honoring the consultation process or do you... Uh, so Arnstein's ladder of citizen participation kind of gauges how involved citizens are in the city and its processes and the planning of it. So it moves at the bottom to kind of a tokenistic consultation where they already have a plan in place and it's just going through the steps, having people approve it. So they look inclusive and participatory, but they're really not. And then all the way at the top to then the citizen control. So citizens are leading the discussion and they're the ones spearheading different initiatives and the government is really acting in response to, you know, their thoughts and their needs rather than kind of the other way around. Just the citizen control being the ultimate goal of different participatory efforts do you guys think that there could be things that you know governments Mm. could do or even citizens could do to move that up the the ladder even just you know one rung at a time wow that's a loaded question how (laughs) informality can be used to to strengthen the process rather informality being seen as something that requires a solution but how could informality and you know that sort of citizen control of allocating um services where they need them and kind of spearheading their own initiatives how could that be supported through governments rather than seeing as it be you know it's either 100% formal or 100% informal could there be a, a medium that could be more readily um available and accessible you know in the global south and the global north yeah i think a bottom solution you know like something that's like community organized i mean corruption is going to be about but going to be in a concern like regardless of you know like the level of um the level of government you're at but i think a community-based approach would would be optimal just because people who are in people who are in the community themselves who like live with their reality like every day they would know best how to allocate funds and just just the fact that folks that live in slums they kind of like struggle with employment um just like the government providing providing, you know, like jobs for them to like work within their communities. So kind of like providing these services would, would itself like solve uh, the, 
the employment issue to some extent while, while also like helping them improve um their communities themselves at least at least for you know like a time being do you think that it could be an idea for governments to i don't know they're like hey we're putting in sanitation where should we do it or giving kind of a budget like giving an allocated amount of money you know to communities and then they do it you know themselves but that's also seen as potential for corruption cities don't know you know neighborhoods can't manage it themselves we have to do it but then they're ultimately not doing it so could that not be a solution where they're doing you know citizens themselves are doing the labor and doing you know most of the work if not all of the work and they're just providing the funds do you think that you know in a in a perfect world that could potentially work if governments supported that I don't really know how to answer this question, to be honest. Like, I think the approach for the global north and the global south for consultation is would look completely different. And actually, in one of my um, planning classes, um, I was I was taught that, or I was made aware, I guess you could say, that um, in the global south, a lot of the planning principles there are informed by the planning textbooks. Um, from the global north so a lot of the planners use the british specifically the british planning systems and rules and that has what has caused a lot of the issues um with developing countries that's what one of my professors was telling me that it's like led to a lot like a spinball effect where those same ideas can't really be applied into that context geographic wise climate wise culture wise like so many different ways in so many different ways and so because planners um, were not really taught how to tailor their planning ways to um, their specific regions and because they were taught, you know, um, westernized ways of planning and planning principles, um, it has sort of affected the way that they can develop to honor their communities, I guess you can say, or build and, um, you know, I guess develop. I don't like that word though. It just feels very um, like elitist in some ways, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It really does kind of create, create a binary, you know, this is how, you know, like almost um, like even like modernization theory, it very much posits, you know, the global North as being the end goal, you know, once developing countries do this, 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 and this, they'll be like us, but they don't have the same culture as us. They don't have the same, you know, political landscape or the same thoughts, the same, you know, worldview experience, nothing. It's not contextual at all. And I think, you know, to your point, Lovna, like it's not, it's not a one size fits all, you know, but it's, it's very much treated like that. And, and I think kind of, you know, looking at informal cities as not in settlements as not, you know, the problem, but as a space of, you know, potential innovation and, and, you know, improvements and how can those ideas um, be incorporated to create more engaged, more responsive and more citizen led development. Yeah, I agree. One of the things I've been thinking about through this whole thing is, you know, we're getting more and more of these cities that it's like you see such stark contrasts between poor areas and these super rich areas. In Toronto, we had like three cities report, you see this like disappearance of the middle class and it's growing upper class and it's growing lower class. And, you know, one of the things I think about when we were talking about this, the whole like dome dining thing in Toronto, under the gardener, 
Um, they were setting up these like mini restaurants. Yeah, so you like you pay for a dome for the night, so you can like eat in this like dome that's separate from everybody else. Under the gardener is such a is such a space where you see a lot of like homeless people setting up camps and stuff. So it it's turned into this kind of thing where it's like, okay, let's eat in the dome and watch all of the homeless people. And it's it's just so disgusting. You see these areas like that where it's like so split up. I think that's a big thing in planning that we just need to see more of like trying to avoid doing that kind of thing and just forcing people to kind of be intermixed and, you know, interacting with one another. So I think an issue with the global, in the global South, or at least just in, in Pakistan is that there's not a lot of urban policy research that's, that's happening. You know, there's not a lot of urban research. There's not a lot of planning research and there's kind of like a dearth of local governance structures to kind of do the sort of planning that's that's required to kind of like alleviate the standard of living for folks that are living in slums deprived of all of these services i think i think it's it's interesting for me that you folks are talking about you know like urban planning and stuff because like before coming to canada like that's not urban policy or like urban planning isn't something that i'd heard of you know the the slums you know, like slums just being accepted, you know, it's like there's there's nothing that's being done. So when you talk about government portioning funds towards, you know, improvement of services in slums, nothing of that sort, to my knowledge, is happening. Like there there hasn't been, you know, like allocation of funds towards improving slums, even though even though there are like more than a few that, that exist and that are like very large. It's just it's just something that's again it's not it's not seen as something that could possibly you know like be changed with like better services so i guess yeah investment in like urban research or like strengthening local governance structures would definitely be good steps towards improving you know like standard of living in slums Well, we had a great discussion today on informal settlements as both sites of state neglect and community innovation, looking at different examples around the world and looking at our own experiences and how we're able to now better reflect on them using different theory and our retrospect to to expand and, and look at our own biases. I hope that everyone listening has has learned some things as well as I know we all have. If you're interested, you can look more into um, some of the different topics that we talked about, and maybe you might be interested yourself in moving the needle forward in having cities of informality being a little more accepted as the norm. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Bye, guys. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening to Cities on Mass with Lumna Alley. Victoria McCutcheon, Ali Sajid, and Brittany Livingston. If you like our show and want to know more, please check out our Instagram page at Cities Unmasked. Or leave us a review on iTunes or Spotify. A special thank you goes out to the University of Toronto School of Cities.